You are listening to the Campus Beat Podcast. I'm your host, Dinah Jansen. Each Wednesday on CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, I welcome a new guest from Queen's University to discuss news, issues, upcoming events, initiatives, and services for the benefit of Queen's students, faculty, staff, and alumni. Thanks for tuning in to this podcast, and we hope you enjoy the episode. everyone. Welcome to Campus Beat. I'm your host, Dinah Jansen. And today I have the great pleasure of welcoming David McDonald from Global Development Studies here at Queen's University into the virtual studio today. Hello, David. Hi, Dinah. Thank you so much for joining us once again. So CFRC has learned that you and a number of your peers have collaborated to publish a brand new ebook collection entitled Public Water and COVID-19 dark clouds, and silver linings. But before fleshing out the themes therein, can we contextualize what is meant by public water? And further, the introduction to the collection that you wrote uh, also asks the question, why public water matters. So what is meant by public water and why does it matter? Sure. Uh, and in fact, that um, that chapter, when you when you do get a chance to have a, a look at it, it's uh, it, it starts with why water, <laughs> and th- so the first question is why does water matter to COVID nineteen? And th- the answer to that is is pretty obvious: uh, washing your hands. Uh, and as um, as contagious as this particular virus is, it's actually relatively easy to combat with uh, with soap and water. So. If, of course, you have access to soap and water. So it's about the fact that water is one of the most effective, soap and water, one of the most effective public health measures for dealing with this, but uh, that uh, hundreds of millions of people around the world do not have access to water. So that then leads us to the question of, well, who owns and manages water? And uh, as I'm sure your listeners will be aware, there's been a, a long-standing debate about private versus public water. And ongoing pressures to privatize water, including here in Canada. Um, Mm -hmm. And although the majority of water in the world remains publicly owned in terms of usually municipal governments owning and operating the system, um, there there are, as I said, uh, continuing pressures to privatize. But there's also uh, been a quite dramatic shift over the last 30 years in the way we even run our public water services. And with the advent of neoliberalism from the 90s on, we've seen a very different way of managing public services, uh, much more like private businesses. So, you know, even the language of, of public services has changed away from, you know, citizens to customers, for example. And so we're really investigating this question of, you know, first of all, what is public water? And, and how have public water operators done things differently than private water operators? And, and what makes for a good public water operator? And, and what does that look like in different contexts? All right, thank you for that. So what concerns are there about access to public water in light of COVID-19? And with that in mind, what disparities related to public water has COVID-19 either revealed, magnified, or intensified? For example, can you tell us what sections of the book might, in fact, shed some light on these disparities? Yeah, well, there's there's two points. One are the sort of long-standing structural problems around access to water, and the other ones are the mm-hmm. sort of more immediate crises that uh, that's emerged. And I'll, I'll just I'll mention the immediate crises initially, um, in that many public water operators have uh, found themselves in, in quite a severe financial crisis. So, they have uh, a lot of them have lost. Uh, 
considerable revenues um, as uh, industry is shut down, um, as households are, are losing income, uh, unable to pay their water bills. Um, I mean, even here in Canada, we've had problems with households unable to afford their water bills, even in a country where water is, is quite cheap. Uh, but in many parts of the world, uh, households uh, were already struggling to pay their water bills. And, uh, and that's been exacerbated by the uh, economic fallout of COVID-19. So water operators have found themselves in a situation where they've seen a, a dramatic drop in revenues at the same time as they've seen a dramatic increase in costs, um, cleaning protocols, um, distance working, um, you know, all, all the health, uh, PPE, et cetera, for their workers. So it's been a, a kind of a, a double whammy. Um, and uh, you know, generally speaking, water operators in wealthier countries, including here in Kingston, we, we've had the resources to deal with this fairly easily. Uh, but a lot of in, in a lot of places in the world, it's, it's, it's been a real struggle. And, and these public water operators are scrambling to try and uh, deal with their, their own personal financial situation or their organizational financial situation. But then there's the larger, you know, long-standing structural problem of uh, lack of access to water. And depending on how you define it, um, there are anywhere between 800 million and 2 billion people in the world that don't have access to, to water easily. And affordability is, is an even bigger problem. Um, so it's often, people are often shocked to learn, for example, that about 15 million Americans a year have their water cut off because they can't afford to pay for their water services. Wow. And, you know, one of the wealthiest countries in the world. Now, of course, we have our own issues here with First Nations communities and lack of access to water. So uh, water poverty um, is, is predominantly Africa, Asia, Latin America, but um, you know, affordability issues and lack of access uh, is, is increasingly a problem in, in the global north. And it, it often fragments along uh, racialized lines, ethnic minority communities, et cetera. So, um, so these are, these are long-standing issues that are frankly getting worse in many respects um, for a variety of reasons. And so I think COVID-19 has, uh, has, as with many things, just sort of exposed the fault lines um, in, uh, in the world, uh, economic and otherwise. And then that's been uh, coupled with these sort of you know, short-term financial crises that many of these public water operators that are, you know, many of whom are trying to do their best, but it's, uh, it, it's, it's even more difficult for them now. Indeed, indeed. So maybe we can shift our focus and look at some of the strengths and disparities among public water operators that COVID-19 has revealed magnified or intensified. For example, the crisis that followed Flint, Michigan switch in water supply occurring back in 2014 is a good example. Have things gotten worse there with COVID? There's actually a chapter in the book on Flint. It, it, it's, well, I, I think they're all really interesting, but uh, the Flint one is for me particularly interesting. It's actually a, a kind of a silver lining story because it, there's obviously very dark clouds there. And, and for listeners who aren't familiar with this, um, partly as a result of the kind of austerity measures and uh, cutbacks in the state of Michigan, um, the uh, Flint Municipal Authority made a decision to switch its water supply to a contaminated source. Uh, this was uh, a huge racialized component to it as well with, with African-Americans being exposed to lead poisoning, et cetera. And this, this became a huge issue. And so uh, you know, investments have been made to try and rectify that problem. Um, 
But then COVID-19 hit <laughs> and it, it made the challenge even worse because a lot of, of people in Flint, Michigan and, and predominantly racialized residents of, of Flint had had their water cut off um, because they couldn't afford to pay for services, et cetera. So, um, but the, the good news story there is because of all the controversies around what happened previously, the public operator there has, has actually become much more transparent, much more engaged. Um, they're, they're listening to citizens. There's a, there's a sort of a, a trust slowly building back uh, uh, around the public water operator. Mm-hmm. So uh, ironically, it that, previous crisis actually put Flint in a, in a slightly better position to deal with this current crisis. And, and the hope is that, um, you know, the, the combination of these things will generate awareness around a, the need for a, a well-financed and equity oriented public water operator and, and b the need to democratize uh, the, the way decisions are made and, and listen to citizens and give them opportunities to, to have their voices heard, et cetera, and to, to deal with the, you know, the, the deep structural inequalities around access to water provision. So, um, so you know, it, it's, it's in, in many places, it's not the, the resources necessarily, it's the political will. Um, and and it, it's often much harder to generate that political will than it is to find money. Um, mm. And so, you know, uh, Flint and the other, uh, Baltimore was the other example in this book and Pittsburgh from the States. Um, you know, I think the kind of uh, growing awareness around racialized inequality uh, has played itself out uh, with access to water for quite a while now. So um, COVID has, has further revealed those things, but because of the politicization of racialization issues, I, I think it's it's actually made these public water operators um, more alert to and uh, proactive on, on the structural inequalities that exist. Now that's not true in, in some places. And, you know, I'll be the first to say that um, in this book, we're trying to sort of celebrate publicness, but there's no point in celebrating public just because something's public. There's a lot of very poorly run public water operators out there. And, you know, even though we tried to choose good examples, even, even in those cases, you know, there's, there's a lot of really uh, negative things going on. Mm-hmm. That's partly related to the ongoing commercialization of water operators who, you know, are, are forced to act like private companies. And so, you know, creating uh, revenue generation through cost recovery and quite aggressive cost recovery and cutting people off if they don't pay for their services is, has been a real problem. So, you know, chapters in the book on South Africa and Colombia, uh, Nigeria and other places, um, these, you know, there's a lack of a political will and a lack of financial resources to deal, to deal with the problem. So a lot of the sort of uh, more positive stuff is, is citizen mobilization demanding change. So, mm-hmm. In, in all the in all the chapters, it's about you know uh, currently existing public water operators. Uh, what are the challenges facing them financially and politically, and you know what are the sort of signs for positive change in the future? All right. Well, one thing that struck me about the book chapters is that there seems to be quite an active voice for water operators throughout. What about water consumers? Do they have an active voice in the chapters, and essentially, what role are they playing in response? Yeah. Um, well, I should say this was uh, what we call a rapid response book. So mm-hmm. we decided uh, in uh, April, I think it was, hey, let's let's do this. Um, and I mentioned before our interview that there's this companion volume on public banks and how they're responding to COVID-19. So uh, we reached out to 
colleagues, and, and this is partly because we've been looking at public banks financing public water. And that's, that's another story, but a very interesting one. So, um, and we said to people, look, do what you can. Um, you yourself might be in lockdown, as most of us were. Uh, you're not going to be doing face-to-face -face interviews. Uh, you're not going to be traveling necessarily to places. So it was really an attempt by people who know what's going on on the ground to try and figure out what's happening. And so it's, it's a lot easier to, uh, you know, reach out to some managers or union leaders or something in the, in the water companies to hear what's going on uh, than it is to try and, you know, interview a random and uh, representative sampling of, of citizens. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but uh, some of the articles, uh, chapters rather, have been written by uh, people from NGOs, people from community-based organizations. So, you know, in fact, their finger is on the pulse of those organizations. And so, you know, the, the book, some of the chapters have been written by people who are actually in the water operator uh, itself. Some of them have been written by NGO people. Some have been written by union people. Uh, some have been written by academics. So it's, um, you know, our, our focus is how have the, have the water operators responded, but it's, it's also, you know, how have they responded in reaction to what citizens are demanding in reaction mm -hmm. to what workers are demanding, uh, et cetera. So, um, yeah, so it, it really has a multiple, uh, multiple set of voices. Um, and frankly, I, you know, I, I, I didn't really didn't know what to expect, um, during a pandemic, what the kind of research would look like. But in the end, uh, we're, we're really quite excited about the quality of, of uh, writing and research that people were able to do. Hmm. Okay, so with responses of water operators often arising from responses and demands from water consumers, as you've mentioned, we can see some kind of collaboration here, even if sparked by demand, if not desperation, you know, people need to drink or wash their hands, bodies, clothes and dishes, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, do you find that there is a fair amount of collaboration between water operators and, and various levels of municipal, provincial and federal governments? Ultimately, where is the onus coming from uh, to respond to disparities in water access during COVID? Yeah, and, and that's, uh, I mean, I've been working on water issues for a long time. Um, and so, you know, it, it's, it became obvious to me very early in my research that it, it's, there is no single model. And um, the way water operates is different from place to place. And it's, I mean, although they're typically run at the municipal level, sometimes provincial level governments are heavily involved. Sometimes national governments are heavily involved. Uh, sometimes they're, you know, on their own. So it, it really does change from, from place to place. Uh, I think, you know, one of the th themes that we're trying to highlight in this is that by dint of the fact that these are public water operators and we've chosen water operators that are basically proud of the fact that they're public. Some of, some of whom, for example, Paris in France and Terrassa in Spain were recently remunicipalized. So they were private and they became public water operators. And so, um, you know, they've, they, some of the authors have written, you know, specifically about, okay, so what is it that we can do that's different about being public? And one of the things they say is that it allows us to sort of communicate with other public water operators. You, you don't get this with the private water operators, right? They're not going to share corporate secrets and help each other out. Um, whereas the, the public water operators, in many of these cases, really made an effort to reach out. So there's a chapter in there in Finland and how the Finnish water operators just immediately started collaborating with one another. Mm -hmm. um, and another chapter about France and how the French public water operators did the same. 
And then there's two chapters in there, one from the uh, Aqua Publica Europea, which is an, an association of public water operators in Europe, mm-hmm. uh, about 60 of them from different countries. And um, their, their entire mandate is to facilitate knowledge exchange between public water operators. So they were running webinars and, and you know, sharing information uh, across countries and across municipalities. And then the other article is, is by GWOPA, which is the Global Water Operator uh, Partnership Alliance, which is a UN agency. And they coordinate knowledge exchange on a global level amongst public water operators. So they were doing the same thing. So all of this is fairly new. This is all within the last 10 years where public water operators have sort of started to come out of their shell and actively celebrate the publicness and coordinate with each other and talk about sort of solidarity and and knowledge sharing. And this is in many cases an explicit political statement about we're public, we don't wanna be private, and we think public is better for these reasons. And, and one of them is this, this knowledge sharing. And it's, you know, it comes out in some of the chapters that it, it was extremely helpful to many of the water operators to learn what their uh, colleagues are doing in other places. And so, um, yeah, it, it, that was a really uh, positive theme to come out of the book. Yeah, I like the positive theme here. I had wondered with increased collaboration that has already been ongoing and perhaps even more so now with COVID-19, are we in fact seeing some positive results? And as your book subtitle suggests, maybe some silver linings? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we are. Um, and, uh, you know, sometimes the, you know, you kind of have to have dark clouds to have silver linings, I suppose. <laughs> um, and so, uh, you know, I'll, I'll just use an example of that. In, in Colombia, in uh, Medellin, which is one of the larger cities in Colombia, there's a public water operator there, um, EPME. And uh, they're celebrated around the world as being a, an extremely efficient uh, public water operator. Um, but they also get criticized because one of the reasons that they're efficient is that they're very aggressive in recovering costs from, from uh, consumers. And sometimes that means cutting people's water off in mm-hmm. order to you know, be efficient. And so, um, you know, in fact, the authors of this particular paper, chapter have been quite critical of this. And so what COVID-19 did was it sort of exposed this practice. And so it's now more difficult for FAME to sort of celebrate its efficiency when that efficiency comes at a real cost, a public health cost and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, costs for families, et cetera. So the hope is that, uh, you know, all the lobbying that these groups have tried to do to get FAME to change its cost recovery policies, the COVID-19 actually might help them use, you know, leverage for that change. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of, you know, shown that, you know, you can't just sort of, you know, do aggressive cost recovery across the board. There, there needs to be a much more sort of sympathetic way of collecting tariffs and, and more progressive tariff structures, et cetera. So, um, you know, in, in some respects, it's, it's, uh, it's been the sort of the dark clouds of COVID-19 that have, have sort of shown some possibilities um, for, uh, uh, you know, some silver linings in, in, in the future. But it can cut both ways too. So in, in Jakarta in Indonesia, um, there's been a, a move for the last 15 years to remunicipalize the, the water operator there. It was, it was privatized in the 90s in a very corrupt kind of way. And uh, they've been moving, you know, towards that. And so, um, you know, this, uh, this particular author talks about the fact that COVID-19 in this case could cut both ways. It could show 
why it's really important to have a publicly owned um, water operator. But there's also more right-wing forces in the country who are saying, well, look, COVID-19 is costing us a lot of money. Uh, we can't afford to pay for public water. We better bring a private water company in uh, because they'll save us money. So, mm-hmm. um, so you know, it, it, it kind of depends on whether you see the glass is half full or half empty. Um, and, uh, but, I, you know, I think that uh, you, you mentioned earlier, what is COVID-19 exposed? And I think it's sort of revealed a lot of tensions within public water that haven't been adequately debated and mm-hmm. um, and so I think in many places it's it's really going to sort of um, force some discussions uh, to be had. Okay so would you say there may be more leverage then for human rights arguments vis-a-vis access to water whether a water operator might cut off people from their water supply when they can't pay or if another private enterprise drains a water supply to fill bottles of water for sale elsewhere while depriving a whole community of a water supply. Yeah, uh, and in fact, there's a chapter in the book uh, by two colleagues of mine who are more or less the experts globally on uh, human right to water. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're, you know, they sort of maintain a, a line they've had for a while, which is... Um, kind of skeptical. It's kind of gets to this as the glass half full or glass half empty thing, because the the language around human rights, and at least the way it's been used in sort of liberal discourse is, is problematic because, uh, for example, private water companies have uh, fully embraced this notion of the human right to water. And their line is, of course, people have the human right to water. And if you want to realize that human right to water, then you better privatize your water services because public water operators don't have any money, they're corrupt, they're inefficient. So, you know, if you want the human right to water, then you should seriously think about bringing the private sector in. And, it's just and, an anathema. <laughs> well, uh, I mean, yeah, anathema. It, it, it's sure. And uh, you know, now having said that, again, uh, there are some very, very poor public water operators. And in yeah. some cases, they're just non-existent. And so, you know, it, it's, it's understandable if you're in a situation where your public water operator is corrupt or uh, negligent or not investing in your neighborhood, and you, you know, think that a private water operator might do that, you, could, you know, you can see all those things happen. Mm-hmm. The reality, of course, uh, and, you know, there's now 25 years of experience, which clearly demonstrates that, you know, in the long run, private water operators do not save money. They do not invest in low-income neighborhoods. They are not more democratic or more transparent than public water operators. So, you know, in in the longer run, you're better to take the time to create uh, democratic and transparent and accountable public water operators. Um, so, you know, but something like a, a crisis like COVID, um, you know, can can again cut both ways. And so, it'll be interesting to see whether it accelerates demands for privatization or whether it reinforces the importance of a more holistic uh, public approach to, to services that cut across health and water and, and other services. So um, yeah, so the human rights to water remains as, as uh, important as ever, um, but it's the, sort of the same old debate between public and private on that point. Okay. so. Still in the vein of human rights, I'd really love to hear more now about Indigenous communities in Canada and perhaps issues related to their access to clean water, again, here in Canada. Do the chapters in the book, Public Water and uh, COVID-19, Dark Clouds and Silver Linings, uh, look at 
issues of access to clean water. For example, Blue Communities in Quebec by Isabel Delaney or Robert Ramsey's article on COVID-19 and privatizing water in Canada. Do any chapters address Indigenous communities and the longstanding issues with clean water access? Sadly, no. Um, I tried very hard uh, to get somebody uh, who, who was available to write on this topic. Um, mm-hmm. But as I mentioned earlier, uh, you know, back in April, things were pretty crazy. And, uh, you know, lining up people was, uh, was a challenge. And we just, we just weren't able to, to get somebody who, uh, you know, an Indigenous person or an expert on this, uh, on this topic. Um, so un- unfortunately, we haven't addressed it uh, directly. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm sure your listeners are well aware of the fact that, uh, you know, we still have dozens of communities in this country which are on boil water advisories and have been in some cases for for two decades it's mm-hmm. it's a disgrace uh it is an absolute disgrace that this country cannot provide basic water and sanitation facilities uh for you know hundreds of thousands of people in this country and and it's not just water of course it's housing and energy access and jobs etc so um you know, Canada has uh, a, a lot to be embarrassed for mm-hmm. uh, in, in terms of, of human rights in general for First Nations people and, uh, and you know, the human right to water is, is, is a case of that. The, the, the chapters that you mentioned on uh, Quebec and, um, and the other one by uh, the QP person, the Quebecan really looks at a, a sort of shifting discourse within Quebec around publicness and mm-hmm. Um, you know, Quebec has a, generally speaking, a, a, a lefter perspective on public services. Um, and so, and then, you know, Montreal uh, recently elected, well, a couple of years ago now, a mayor that is, is wanting to remunicipalize some services, take them back into the public fold, away from private operators, et cetera. So that, that chapter sort of looks at, at the sort of coordination of publicness and public water operators in Quebec. Um, Robert's paper is actually uh, one that looks at the uh, new initiatives by the uh, Liberal government federally to try and um, privatize water services in this country, and in particular a a town called Mapleton in Ontario. And um, they have since put this initiative on hold. Um, Mm -hmm. It's not clear that it was because of COVID, but they basically put the decision on hold during COVID. And I think part of it was just sort of, you know, a pause for thought and, you know, wow, do we really want to be privatizing our water in the middle of a public health crisis? And, and so that chapter is really about how the, uh, the federal government has created this, uh, again, getting back to public banks, has created this so-called public bank, Canada Infrastructure Bank. Um, but in fact, what this bank is doing is leveraging public dollars to bring in private dollars to privatize our services. Uh, everything from hospitals to water to, to uh, ports and airports, et cetera. So uh, while the rest of the world is actually starting to reverse privatization, Canada at the federal and a lot of provincial levels is actually ramping up privatization. So, um, you know, in some respects, the uh, our storyline here is, is kind of the... Uh, pessimistic one uh, because um, the, the, the pressures for, for privatizing are ramping up, whereas in the rest of the world, they tend to be kind of starting to reverse now. Okay, so we've talked about a number of themes that are weaving through the entire collection. Now, can you tell us what the overall thrust of the book is 
and to whom the book is directed? Mm. Well, I'll start with the, the second question. It's aimed at a very broad audience, um, mm. uh, from academics to activists to uh, water operators themselves to policymakers to unionists, um, community organizations. So, they, you know, the water sort of community, if you will, is is very broad. Um, mm-hmm. Unlike, let's say, again, public banks, uh, where you, you know, you, the average person has no idea what a public bank is and doesn't engage in it. Uh, everybody drinks water. Yes. I mean, public banks <laughs> should be of interest to everybody as well. But um, nevertheless, uh, you know, so, so we've really tried to, you know, reach out to and in fact, you know, the, the, the contributors are from that sort of broad base as well. So, um, and, you know, we've tried to avoid the sort of academic jargon in the book uh, as well and, and, and make it accessible. Um, and I, I'm sorry, I answered the second part of your question. I forgot the first part of it. Tell us about the overall thrust of the book. Right, overall thrust. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's, it's, um, it is this kind of uh, trade-off between dark clouds and silver linings. And, you know, is the glass half full or the glass half empty is, you know, uh, I think the world increasingly is because of this pandemic is is realizing that uh, you know we need to take water services seriously. But we've known this for decades, and you know we continue not to fund water services. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, it, I think this may be the first time, and I write this in the introduction, that there has been a truly sort of universal sense of of water, the essentialness of water. And, um, you know, when people in place like Flint, Michigan can't wash their hands, uh, then, you know, they, they're suddenly they've got solidarity with, with somebody from Nigeria. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, the hope is that uh, amongst citizens, amongst governments, amongst big, you know, UN institutions, um, there may finally be a push to close the enormous gaps in investments in, in essential water services. Um, and so, uh, so that's the sort of the hope. But then the book sort of is about the, the complexities of, of the terrain in different places and, you know, what it looks like to create a democratic, accessible and affordable water service in a place like Flint mm-hmm. uh, or in Quebec or on First Nations communities in Canada is, is going to be very different than it is in uh, Colombia or, or Indonesia. Um, and, uh, and so I hope that, you know, that sense of complexity comes out. Uh, and so, the, yeah, there is this kind of strain tension that's something that is just so utterly universal, uh, the need to drink water and, and clean our hands, mm-hmm. is it, actually an enormously complex uh, topic. And, uh, and we can't ignore that complexity. It's... it's uh, in part because you just simply can't impose policies uh, in places where they're, you know, they're, they're not appropriate. So it's, you know, I think that the complexity of, of what is uh, a seemingly simple topic is, is probably the, the key messaging from the book. Okay, so by the time this is uh, broadcasted and podcasted, the book will have already been released uh, the week of November 9th. So where can people access the book? And I understand it's also freely accessible. Yeah, uh, it's it's being released as an ebook. We will be doing small print runs as well. And um, it's uh, you can find it on uh, the our, my uh, research project website, and that's the Municipal Services Project 
org, And uh, if you search under publications, it'll be there and you can download the, the whole book as a PDF or, or individual chapters. And uh, we encourage people to, uh, to get the word out on it as well to any other interested people. All right. Thank you for that. Um, hmm, okay. So now early in our conversation, we touched on Indigenous communities and, and continued issues with access to clean water in Canada as an area that is ripe for research, writing, and response. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about other research holes that have revealed themselves in the process of creating this collection? Ultimately, what stones have been left unturned that excite you most? Yeah, oh, great question. Um, well, for, for me right now, it is this focus on uh, financing public water. So, you know, the, the people in favor of privatization, one of their, one of their central arguments is that um, governments don't have the money. And uh, estimates are to, to meet the sustainable development goals for, for water, uh, sustainable development goal six. Um, it's going to require at least $150 billion a year. Um, and, uh, you know, COVID-19 has made that even more difficult because uh, now governments are, uh, you know, seriously in debt. And countries that need to invest the most are the least able to pay for it. So um, this has been one of the biggest reasons to push for privatization. And what we've been arguing is that, well, hold on a second here. Uh, you know, there is a lot of public money out there. There's enormous amounts of public money out there. And in fact, public banks, of which there are over 900 of them in the world, uh, hold about uh, a third of banking assets. Uh, and it, trillions, globally. Wow. Globally, yeah. Uh, now, some of these banks are very problematic. Uh, so for example, the big Chinese state-owned banks are, are anything but democratic and transparent. Um, some of them are kind of corrupt and not very interesting, but there's some, there's some really progressive and uh, public banks out there that are, are doing a lot of work in water. In fact, in, in Holland, there's a bank, a public bank that does nothing but finance public water operators. Mm -hmm. um, and it's been around for 50 years. Uh, but uh, so this, uh, you know, we're doing, we're, we're looking at banks in Brazil, in Argentina and Costa Rica and India and various parts of the world. Um, and what they're doing to try and finance public water, because that, frankly, you know, democratizing public water, you know, making it more equity oriented, those are sort of political things. But none of that's going to happen if we don't have the finance uh, to expand and, uh, uh, and improve public water services. And so, yeah, for us right now, it's this question of um, where's that public finance going to come from? And mm -hmm. uh, the, the question of, of public banks financing public water is, uh, is our next big uh, research thrust. And we can find responses to the question of financing and public banks in the companion volume to public water and COVID-19, yes? Yeah, and this, uh, this one, which will be coming out in early December, is, uh, is Public Banks and COVID-19. And the, the subtitle there is uh, Financing, um, uh, sorry, combating, combating the Pandemic with Public Finance. And uh, that's a, a survey of about 25 different public banks around the world and how they have been responding to COVID-19. And same basic storyline. Some of them are doing a really interesting progressive uh, job. Some of them have been more, more problematic. Uh, but, uh, you know, no one ever said public services were perfect. Uh, you know, our goal is to try and identify sort of good uh, good practices and, uh, and look at, you know, how these things could and are they suitable to be transferable elsewhere and, and doing that knowledge sharing? Well, all right. I can't wait to talk to you again in about a month or so. I'm looking forward to checking out that volume as well. Um, David, anything else to add before we wrap up today? 
I don't think so. I guess, uh, you know, I've been teaching this course this uh, semester on uh, COVID-19 in the Global South in, in devs. And, uh, you know, I, one of the things I, I say to the students is it's not very often you get to talk about something, uh, particularly in development studies, uh, which, you know, immediately resonates uh, with, with people here. Um, you know, the, the kind of poverty and displacement and so on in, in many parts of the world is, is you know, it, we of course have these things here, but not, you know, not in the same quantity and quality often. Um, but, uh, you know, washing your hands and uh, on a daily basis to prevent the spread of, of the coronavirus is something we can all relate to. Mm -hmm. And so, um, uh, you know, I, I think uh, every time you wash your hands here, uh, appreciate the fact, A, that you can do it. And B, that for the most part, it's publicly owned and operated in Canada, and uh, we don't want to lose that. Thank you so much for that. Folks, we've been chatting with David McDonald, professor in global development studies here at Queen's University, about the new ebook he has co-edited entitled Public Water and COVID-19, Dark Clouds and Silver Linings, being released the week of November 9th. So check it out. Uh, thank you very much, David, for joining us in the virtual studio today. Well, thanks for your great questions, Dana. Okay, and that's a wrap. Thank you so much, everyone, for tuning into Campus Beat. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. The CFRC Podcast Network at podcast.cfrc.ca is brought to you by the generous support of the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences.